As we uh, prepare to turn to our passage in uh, 1 Kings uh, 12, just want to say a word of, of preface, and uh, maybe by way of introduction, I want to uh, mention something that happened um, on the vacation my wife and I just went on uh, a week ago. We're both Canadian, and so uh, we were uh, driving back uh, to Canada to see some friends who were living in Montreal, and uh, we had our, our two kids in the van, and we were able to to get off okay, uh, which is always a big thing when you've got little kids. And um, uh, we were driving, and we hit Port Huron right by the, the Canadian-U.S. border. And my wife uh, says to me, you got the passports, right? And I said, yep. And uh, she said, uh, what, what about the birth certificate for our son who's three months old? And I went, uh... And you know that sort of sinking feeling uh, when you I say, I can't believe I did that? Uh, so my response was immediately, hold on, I need to pull over, go to a Tim Hortons, get a coffee, and think. Um, as I just had this uh, terrible feeling in, in the pit of my stomach, how could I have done this? Uh, well, and you, and you just wonder, sort of, what have I done? And um, that's sort of uh, uh, helpful for us to think of, that question, what have I done? Uh, as we go into our passage uh, this evening. Sometimes uh, in, in more serious areas, in other realms, uh, we make uh, decisions or we do things, not just mistakes like forgetting uh, the birth certificate or passports, uh, but, but we make foolish decisions, we say things, we do things, uh, and, and all of a sudden we go, what have I done? How could I be so foolish uh, to have done this? Look what I've got myself into. And my hope is that as we turn to 1 Kings 12, uh, there will be a word of, of comfort uh, spoken to God's people as we look at those what have I done sickening moments in relation uh, to the power of our God. So please turn to 1 Kings chapter 12. And we'll read the first 24 verses. Rehoboam went to Shechem. For all Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. And as soon as Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, heard of it, for he was still in Egypt where he had fled from King Solomon. Just a word of context, Jeroboam had been uh, uh, told that he would inherit part of the kingdom of, of God in the, the previous chapter because of the sins of Solomon. Uh, then Jeroboam returned from Egypt. And they sent and called him, and Jeroboam and all the assembly of Israel came and said to Rehoboam, your father made our yoke heavy. Now, therefore, lighten the, heavy, the hard service of your father and his heavy yoke on us, and we will serve you. He said to them, Go away for three days, then come again to me. So the people went away. Then King Rehoboam took counsel with the old men who had stood before Solomon, his father, while he was yet alive, saying, How do you advise me to answer this people? And they said to him, if you will be a servant to this people today and serve them and speak good words to them when you answer them, then they will be your servants forever. But he abandoned the counsel that the old men gave him and took counsel with the young men who had grown up with him and stood before him. And he said to them, what do you advise that we answer this people who have said to me, lighten the yoke that your father put on us? And the young men who had grown up with him said to him, Thus shall you speak to this people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. And thus shall you say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thighs. 
And now, whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. So Jeroboam and all the people came to Rehoboam the third day as the king said, Come to me again the third day. And the king answered the people harshly, and forsaking the counsel that the old men had given him, he spoke to them according to the counsel of the young men, saying, My father made your yoke heavy, but I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. And so the king did not listen to the people, for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord that he might fulfill his word, which the Lord spoke by Ahijah the Shilonite to Jeroboam the son of Nebat. And when all Israel saw that the king did not listen to them, the people answered the king, What portion do we have in David? We have no inheritance in the son of Jesse. To your tents, O Israel. Look now to your own house, David. So Israel went to their tents. But Rehoboam reigned over the people of Israel who lived in the cities of Judah. Then King Rehoboam sent Adoram, who was taskmaster over the forced labor, and all Israel stoned him to death with stones. And King Rehoboam hurried to mount his chariot to flee to Jerusalem. So Israel had been in rebellion against the house of David to this day. And when all Israel heard that Jeroboam had returned, they sent and called him to the assembly and made him king over all Israel. There was none that followed the house of David, David, but the tribes of Judah only. When Rehoboam came to Jerusalem, he assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, to fight against the house of Israel to restore the kingdom to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. But the word of God came to Shemaiah, the man of God. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, and to the rest of the people. Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So they listened to the word of the Lord and went home again, according to the word of the Lord. Father in heaven, we give thanks for this portion of your word and we pray that uh, we may learn from this when we study the life of Rehoboam and Jeroboam, that we may learn from that. And, and we pray that through the preaching of Pastor Wayne, that we may, this will be made clear to us, that we may be benefited and may be edified through this. And just bless him abundantly, we pray, as he preaches to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So at an early hour on Thursday morning, the streets along the line of the procession gave the sign that the eventful day of the coronation had at length arrived. Busy, anxious groups, regardless of breakfast and anxious for only places from which to see the events, were parading up and down the streets. This was the report of The Guardian, a British newspaper in June 30, 1838, and the report described the dramatic scene of Queen Victoria's coronation. People of all stripes were pressing for a place to view uh, the coronation that was going to happen. 
The streets were elegantly decorated. All the people were of a singular mind. Uh, royalty was going to be crowned today. There was a, a feeling of anticipation in the air. People love these sorts of events. Well, the report may just as well have described the events uh, in the passage we just read, uh, which happened about 3,000 years earlier. Rehoboam, the son of King Solomon, went to Shechem, for all of Israel had come to Shechem to make him king. As Solomon's heir, Rehoboam had already ascended to the throne in Jerusalem, the heart of the kingdom. But as he goes to Shechem, he is going with the expectation that he will take his rightful place as king over all of Israel, all the tribes. The people, on their part, are also prepared to make Rehoboam their king, except they have one final request. Led by Jeroboam, who had fled to Egypt after Solomon heard that God had promised to give him uh, part of the tribes of Israel, the people of Israel had this single request to ask of Rehoboam. The coronation is expected, the arrangements are in, a, in place, but Jeroboam and the people come to Rehoboam and, and, and they say, just one more thing, lighten our load. Now, when Jeroboam and the people bring their request to the king, he asks them uh, smartly for three days to deliberate. But as we look at this passage, what's really important to catch in this passage is the stupidity or the foolishness that happens at Shechem. The author of Kings makes it clear in a couple of different ways that Rehoboam was a fool. That's why if you've got an ESV translation of the Bible, it's, it's heading uh, of Rehoboam's folly is particularly appropriate or helpful. But the foolishness in this story extends not just to Rehoboam, but also to the people of Israel. They, they weren't absolved from the charge of poor, foolish decisions either. So I want to show you the, the folly that takes place in this story by pointing out four things. The first thing I want to show you is who Rehoboam hears or who he listens to. As Rehoboam uh, deliberates over the people's request, he seeks to, to hear counsel from two different groups. The first group is uh, his father, Solomon's advisors. These men were older and in the Bible, wisdom is often associated with age because you've had the opportunity to accumulate experience. As Job 12.12 12 says, wisdom is with the aged. And these men wisely counsel Rehoboam to ease the burden of the people and that if he were to do this, the people would be his servants forever. He would have their loyalties for a lifetime. But it's clear from our passage that Rehoboam really has no interest in listening to them. He ditches them, he abandons their counsel, verse 8, and he turns to the equivalent of what would be his, his college roommates. Rehoboam, uh, his words reveal that he wasn't interested in listening to his father's advisors, but he's already predisposed to heed the counsel of these younger men. When he spoke to his, his father's counselors, notice what he said. He said, how do you advise me to answer these people? But when he turns to the younger men, he, he, he says, uh, and these are the guys he's grown up with, he says, what do you advise that we answer these people? These guys are his people. But these young men prove to be, if I can say it, blundering meatheads. The older men have counseled a, a, a gracious response along the lines of 
Proverbs 15, 1, a soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. But the younger men, they tell Rehoboam that he should really show them who is boss. He should flex some muscle. Look at verses uh, 10 and 11. Thus shall you speak to the people who said to you, Your father made our yoke heavy, but you lighten it for us. Thus you shall say to them, My little finger is thicker than my father's thigh. And now whereas my father laid on you a heavy yoke, I will add to your yoke. My father disciplined you with whips, but I will discipline you with scorpions. Rehoboam's advisors begin their advice, uh, uh, first of all to Rehoboam, by uh, suggesting that he asserts himself as being more manly than his father. What the reference to uh, the, the little finger and the thighs there is likely a crude sophomoric reference to Solomon's uh, uh, sexual organ. And then, he's, and then he's supposed to insist the way of might. He's supposed to flex muscle. He's supposed to intimidate. That's the, the, the first foolish thing we see. Who is Rehoboam listening to? He's listening to these foolish young men. But secondly, notice how Rehoboam chooses to respond. Rehoboam chooses to listen to this younger group. When the people return uh, uh, to Rehoboam, he drops the hammer on them, so to speak. Now, while Rehoboam doesn't include the, the, the crude anatomical digs at his dad, uh, in verses 12 to 14, he basically, he, uh, the, uh, the, the author of Kings puts the exact words on his lips uh, as the younger men had given to him. He's just repeating what these young, crass, foolish men had said. The author is drawing our attention to the fact that Rehoboam is responding particularly foolishly by responding as the young men had suggested. But thirdly, notice who Rehoboam sends. Once the people hear that Rehoboam was not going to lighten their load, uh, they returned to their homes without a king. They wanted no part in this heavy-handed son of Solomon who had vowed an even tougher regime. Now, at this point, you'd be thinking that Rehoboam would perhaps realize that he had overplayed his hand. You'd think that he had, uh, it would begin to dawn on him that he had perhaps made a mistake and he had, uh, uh, shouldn't have listened to this terrible advice that he had received from his frat buddies. You'd think he would have realized he had made a strategic blunder. Gentlemen, it's sort of like um, when you say something completely uh, uh, foolish to your wife. Uh, for example, you say, what do you mean I can't watch the football game on our anniversary with the guys? And there's this moment uh, that you sort of realize that you've really butchered things. And at that moment, guys, uh, uh, you have a decision to make. Am I going to be smart about this or am I going to double down? I've, it'll be seven years we've been married later this month, so some of you guys maybe have some more experience on me and you know what the smart answer is. Guys, what's the smart answer? It would be an apology, right? And maybe if you've got your A game that day, it's a trip to the florist, okay? The smart course is not to track her down and insist that you were right. That's asking for trouble. But that is, in a sense, what Rehoboam does. He doubles down here. The smart thing for Rehoboam would, uh, to do would be to engage in some serious diplomacy, uh, maybe uh, th this sort of equivalent of a trip to the florist and a, an apology. Perhaps that wouldn't have resolved every issue, but it would have been a lot wiser than what he actually does. Look at verse 18. Notice who Rehoboam sends as his representative. He sends Adoram. Who's Adoram? 
Well, the text tells us this was the man who served as the head over forced labor under David and under Solomon. So perhaps Rehoboam thought that the people could be persuaded, maybe by a further assertion of power, but he supposed wrongly. See, when the people uh, complain about the difficulty of the work uh, that was, was imposed upon them, uh, sending the man who was in charge of enforcing the uh, unpaid forced labor is not a wise move. In fact, this is a very foolish move on the part of Rehoboam, and it's one that got Adoram killed and only solidified the division between Rehoboam and the rest of Israel. But as I said, the people of Israel are not absolved in the foolish decisions in this passage. Israel uh, acts not only foolishly, but acts sinfully. For despite Rehoboam's folly, the people of Israel, uh, their response is not justified because they choose to rebel, not just against Rehoboam, but against the house of David. Notice in our passage how that's repeated several times in verses 16 to 20. That the people weren't just breaking free of Rehoboam specifically, but they were rebelling against the Davidic king, Rehoboam being David's grandson. They were rebelling against the king who God had made special promises to. By rebelling against Rehoboam, Israel's forsaking the line of David. They abandoned the promises made to David, and a civil war nearly breaks out. Except God at this point mercifully intervenes, telling Israel and telling Rehoboam to stop because all this is from his hand. So hopefully just you can see that this is an episode in the history of God's people that is marked by great foolishness. Foolishness on the part of Rehoboam and in the counselors he listens to, in in, uh, his response to the people, uh, in in how he he, uh, responds after they depart from Uh, uh, Shechem, but also foolishness on the part of the people. So we see the the foolishness in this passage, but there's also a second very prominent theme that we need to catch in this passage if we're to understand that, uh, understand it, and it's the theme of God's sovereignty. Now the book of, of Kings was written to explain the troubled history of the people of Israel. It was uh, written to explain things like the kingdom, uh, the division of the kingdom. And the exile that the people would later go into, Israel was supposed to be God's chosen people. And yet somehow they had gone from the glory days under King David and under King Solomon. And they'd gone from there to a a split kingdom and and, and to all the the messiness that comes with that and, and to the exile. And the question that Kings is repeatedly answering for its readers is this, why? Why did this happen? Why did so many bad things happen to Israel? If, if they were God's special people, where was God? Wasn't he paying attention? Well, Kings explains that God was, in fact, paying attention. He was paying quite close attention, in fact. We see in, in our passage quite explicitly that God was in control over all of it, and he was working out his great purposes for his chosen people. And that's what we're seeing in 1 Kings 12. Where was God when uh, uh, the, the kingdom of his special people Israel began to unravel in our chapter? How could he allow this to happen? How could he allow the division of the kingdom? Well, on one hand, we could say that 
quite rightly, uh, it was um, uh, Rehoboam's foolishness that was to blame. But the text says we have to say more than that. That's true. Rehoboam's foolishness on one level is the reason for the division of the kingdom. But we need to say more. Our passage stresses that it was God who brought about the division of the kingdom. Far from, from seeing the difficult uh, uh, spot, the hard place that the people of God were brought into, far from that undercutting God's power, Kings attributes this division to God's providence, to God's power, to God's willing it. The point's repeated twice. First in verse 15, again if you look down, so the king did not listen to the people for it was a turn of affairs brought about by the Lord. And then again in verse 24, so that we don't miss it. When God mercifully intervenes, we read, Thus says the Lord, you shall not go up and fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Every man return to his home, for this thing is from me. So in other words, the, the gathering of the people at Shechem for the coronation, the people's uh, request to Rehoboam, uh, Jeroboam's hearing of, of these things and, and coming uh, to the people, Rehoboam's deliberations, Rehoboam's inclining his heart to side with uh, the young, foolish advisors, and the resulting division of the kingdom, all this was brought about by God. Why? Well, in 1 Kings 11, uh, after Solomon's heart had been led astray to worship uh, uh, other gods, God spoke through a prophet uh, saying that he was going to punish Solomon for his idolatry. But he wasn't going to punish Solomon uh, at that exact moment, but he would punish Solomon by stripping ten of the tribes from his son and giving them to Jeroboam. And so we see then in our passage that God sovereignly orchestrated the events that take place because he had spoken through his prophet. He had spoken, uh, he had given his word. And he was zealous that he, the living God, should be shown uh, that he alone was worthy of all worship and that his word always comes true. God ordains or he causes the events that transpire in 1 Kings 12. It's his work. It's his doing. It's for the accomplishment of his purposes. The passage makes things uh, extra clear for us. It's not saying, as some uh, maybe are tempted to say, that God is able to use or to work around Rehoboam's foolishness. God does use Rehoboam's foolishness, of course, but it's not as though God is, is responding to or reacting to Rehoboam's foolish actions. God's not making the most of a bad situation here. The bald claim that our, our text is making is that Rehoboam's foolishness was God's purpose. Not that it was reworked for God's purpose, but God brought about this turn of affairs. He brought it about uh, by turning Rehoboam's heart to folly. God stands uh, sovereignly over the human heart to turn it wherever he will, as Proverbs 21 one says. Now this can maybe strike you as perhaps a remarkable thing to say, that God rules over and can work in the hearts of, of people in such a way that he directs their actions. But this is not the only passage that makes this claim. We see elsewhere in Scripture that, that God's providence, his sovereignty, his, his rule, that it's exercised even uh, in or upon the human heart. Exodus 9, the sovereign God hardens the heart of, of Pharaoh so that he would not let the Israelites go free. 
Or Exodus 11, God uh, works in the hearts of the Egyptians so that they gave their gold and their silver and their jewelry to the departing Jews, something that they would not otherwise be inclined to do on their own. But God sovereignly inclines their heart in this direction. Or 1 Samuel 2, Eli the priest rebukes uh, Eli's, uh, uh, Eli rebukes his sons for their wickedness and he warns them of the danger they're in. And yet Samuel tells us that they would not listen to the voice of their father for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. In all these passages, as in 1 Kings, God stands over and he rules over his creatures in such a way that he works all things all things, even the inclinations of the heart, in such a way that his purposes are accomplished. As our passage makes clear, God stands even over the foolishness of man. Now, don't be mistaken. God uh, stands over our choices in such a way that we're still responsible for them. There's no getting off the hook here. There's no saying, uh, well, that really was a poor decision, a a foolish decision even, uh, but what was I to do about it? Apparently, it was God's sovereign will. There's no no doing that here. God didn't take an an unwilling Rehoboam and force him to play the fool. Rehoboam, as in the other biblical examples cited, he was still acting according to his own nature, his, his own inclinations, and therefore he's still responsible for his folly. He's rightly blamed for his folly. Dale Ralph Davis, uh, commenting on this passage, writes, The Lord's sovereignty did not violate Rehoboam's free decision. Rather, it came about through that freedom. Sovereignty seems so natural. Here's Rehoboam, unsatisfied with the moderating, conciliatory stance of his father's advisors. But his blood gets up when his peers do their wordsmithing. He likes their concepts, uh, the concepts they throw around, the new terminology they float. Assertive leadership, power rule, ultimatum, no doubt about that. That's the way they should go. That's what Rehoboam wants, what Rehoboam wants to do. And yet at the same time, it was a twist brought about from the Lord. It was Rehoboam's foolish choice, and yet it was a turn of events orchestrated by God. So when we come to see the, the extent to which God is in control, even over uh, the most, if I can put it colloquially, even the most boneheaded of decisions. It has all sorts of implications for how uh, we go through life. And I want to just point out two implications, one on a, a larger scale and the other on a more personal level. First, God is sovereign over all things, right down to the foolish choices that individuals make. Then we need not be frightened by the headlines. If God works through the foolishness of of men, then we don't need to be frightened by the shifting political tides. We don't need to be frightened by the potentially foolish actions taken by our leaders. God is in control, and he is working out every aspect of the things that transpire, even those most cringeworthy, so that his purposes will be realized and his word will be kept. When we look at the national headlines, whether it be under this presidency or under any other, you uh, you see as as Christians, we look at that and we have a confidence that that no one else can have. The natural man uh, who holds that there's no God, that the the atheist or the person who holds that God doesn't uh, really involve himself in in the details of 
of human affairs, the deists, they have to hold that the trajectory of human history is always in doubt. Our future is always a, a tenuous thing. If there's no God or if God is not interested in our affairs, if he's not sovereign, then the natural consequence of that line of thinking is that history's unfolding is uncertain and it's random. There's no hand to guide. There's no hand to protect. For the natural man, for the natural woman, it seems that there's no alternative but to say that human history is forever teetering on the edge of catastrophe. And there's no safety net. In a world without God or a world in which God does not involve himself, then human history may well rest on the shoulders of President Trump and his ability to make wise choices. It may rest on the shoulders of any other of the international leaders. All it would take is for one of these leaders to have a really bad day, to make a really big blunder, and the world could come crashing down unexpectedly. If there's no sovereign God, what reason is there for confidence or security in the future? The fact is, there is none. There's none. You can have none in a natural worldview. But by contrast, the Bible speaks of human history as being in the hands of our, of our Father, of God. And that therefore, there's, there's a particular end that history is being guided toward. All creatures are in his hand and all things, uh, all things come from his hand, as the Heidelberg Catechism tells us. He stands over it all. He stands over kings and presidents, nations and individuals, as we heard in Daniel chapter 2 at the beginning of our service. He's actively involved in such a way that he works all things according to the counsel of his will. God's not a, a bystander peering into human history, but he's working in history to ensure that his word stands. And that's just as true today as it was in Shechem 3,000 years ago. We as Christians ought not be scared by the public foolishness that flashes across our screens or, or scrolls up across our Twitter feed. Because even human stupidity is not an unfettered beast, but one that the Lord uh, is sovereign over. He's sovereign over the folly of man. Human folly cannot thwart or throw uh, or divert the plans of the Lord. Davis, whom I quoted earlier, puts it well saying this. He says, The story filtered through verse 15 should provide a massive encouragement to Christ's flock. Is the kingdom division a sad affair? Yes. But Yahweh had already predicted it and is here bringing his word to pass. Are Rehoboam and his favorites arrogant, cocky, and stupid? Probably. But verse 15 testifies that human hubris never catches Yahweh by surprise. He uses it. Big men, especially royal, arrogant ones, are simply little servants of Yahweh's word. Contrary to our fears, human stupidity is not running loose, but is on the leash of God's sovereignty. God is sovereign over human stupidity, ensuring that his word shall come to pass. Now, besides being reassuring to us on, on, a, on a bigger scale, we can also find reassurance in this passage given our own foolishness. There's a personal comfort to be had here. The sphere of God's action, of God's power, of his authority, it's not limited just to our best choices, our really good days, but his authority is also exercised even over our worst days and our most foolish decisions. All the choices that you make, Wise and foolish, 
are choices that God, by his governing, brings about. Now, you're still responsible for them. You still suffer consequences for your foolish actions, which is why uh, one reason why you should pursue wisdom. But there's no foolish thing or there's no sinful thing that, could, that you could ever do that would catch God off guard. There's nothing you could do that would ruin God's plans for you. God is sovereign in such a way that he even uses human foolishness to accomplish his purposes. So I just want to say to you tonight, if, if you're someone who has uh, made foolish decisions, I imagine all of us at some point could say, man, that was a really foolish thing I've done. You've made decisions that have had uh, real consequences for relationships, for your reputation. You cannot think to yourself, my foolish actions have put me beyond the grace of God, beyond the reach of God, that my foolishness has screwed things up so badly, so irreparably, uh, that somehow I am, am outside of, of God's will. No, we can't say that. We cannot give way to that sort of despair. Perhaps you're thinking, or, 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 or right now, you're, you're experiencing the hard consequences of your sin. Maybe you've experienced uh, 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 something and it's just, uh, you've you said something and it's cost you a relationship. Or it's, or it's put unspeakable stress on that relationship. Maybe you, you've done, done things that have, have uh, uh, ruined your reputation. Maybe you've been caught in some sort of foolishness. Maybe the foolishness of, of sexual sin. Maybe the foolishness of laziness. Maybe the foolishness of, of pride. Maybe like the readers of the book of Kings, you're left to look back and wonder, how could I have gotten myself in such a mess? How could this have happened? What did I do? Where is God in this? Well, where your foolishness is also sin, first of all, you, you have repenting to do. You need to repent to God and perhaps to other people. And there may be consequences uh, that you uh, may experience. But here's the thing. If you're a Christian, if you're in Christ, if you're trusting in Christ, if you're loving Christ, then God has spoken a word to you. Romans 8, 28, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. God has spoken this word to his people, and he is just as intent in keeping this word as he was in keeping his word that he spoke by his prophet to Jeroboam. Every instrument in God's hand, including your folly, including my folly, he will turn for your good if you are in Christ. You're in Christ, even your foolishness. Though it may grieve you and though it may grieve others, God will ultimately turn for your good. It may be painful, it may have consequences, but even your folly, if you are in Christ, will not be wasted since God wields it as an instrument in his sovereign hand. Now some of you might be thinking, okay, that sounds really good, but uh, I've really played the part of the fool. I've really screwed it up. What's God doing? How, how could he possibly do something here? And we, and, and we just don't see it. We, don't, we can't see it. How could God be at work here? Well, let me give you one final piece of assurance. The most foolish act ever committed 
was one that happened over 900 years after Rehoboam's folly. Rehoboam's descendant, Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth to save sinners. He was sinless, he was blameless, and yet he was arrested, rejected, despised, and put to death. There is no more foolish act that can be imagined than putting the sinless Savior to death. And yet, as Peter tells us in Acts 2, God had ordained that even this, the most foolish act in human history, might be uh, uh, put in place uh, so that God might accomplish his perfect purposes, the salvation of his people. As Peter said, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. See here, the foolishness of men was not an obstacle that God had to work around, but it was yet another instrument at his sovereign disposal that he worked through to win life for sinners. If God ordained and if God used this most foolish of acts, the death of his son, to accomplish his purposes for our salvation, then you can trust that he is ready, he is able to do the same for you in Christ, just as he has promised with your folly and with your, fr- and with your sin. So friend, don't despair, but rest in God. His wisdom is perfect, and we can trust in that. Let's pray. Sovereign God, we thank you tonight that you apply your perfect power and you apply all your wisdom for the good of your people and for the glory of your name. Lord, we confess that we are not only a, a sinful people, but we are often a foolish people, saying things with our mouths, doing things with our hands, thinking things in our hearts and in our minds that are are absolutely foolish. Lord, when we are made to feel the, the, the consequences of that, we might be left to despair. But we thank you for this word, which tells us, which comforts us by saying that if we are in Christ, you are working these things, even our foolishness, for our good, for your glory. Lord, if, if, if there is anyone here who is despairing over just the foolish things that, that they have done, I pray that this might be a, a particular comfort to them, that they would run afresh to Christ today with repentance, but also knowing that, Lord, none is, out, uh, none is beyond the reach of your grace, beyond the scope of your power. So we praise your name. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.